as uh, Sydney was kind of leading us through talking about this peace candle, I kind of had this thought of, I wonder what peace is like in my life today, in your life today, but also uh, at the day of Jesus' birth. What does that word even mean? It means different things at different times and different places to different people. And so I want to pull at that thread a little bit. And I want to read a, a scripture that we actually used last week uh, to introduce us to this idea. And this is Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, as I, as I mentioned, we, we looked at this scripture a little bit last week. Uh, but last week, we talked a lot about the, the Magi in particular and their gift giving. Today, I want to talk about the other person in this story, King Herod. Now, a little bit of reminder or background on who King Herod was. King Herod was king in Jerusalem. He was a foreigner uh, who kind of came into this position by buddying up to the Roman Empire, who's in charge of everything, and kind of uh, forcing his way in. And the, interestingly, the story of Herod can be traced all the way back to Genesis in uh, the stories of Jacob and Esau. If you were with us as we were talking through Genesis over the last year, you'll remember stories of Jacob and Esau. While Jacob grew up and became Israel and all of Israel came from his line, Esau grew up and uh, the country, the nation of Edom came from Esau's line. So Jesus comes uh, into, the, into the picture here through the line of Israel, while Herod himself is an Edomite, comes through the line of Esau. And throughout the Old Testament, you have these prophecies and these messages about these two uh, nations, these two clans, these two kingdoms, that they will collide, the offspring of Jacob and Esau. And Herod seems to be a guy who kind of gets this. He kind of understands his position. I'm in power, but the scriptures foretell of someone from, from the Israel line who will supersede me. And so when the Magi comes, he sees this as a warning. And I'm going to stomp out this threat to my leadership and my rule. And so he pretends, hey, when you find out where this baby is, let me know so I can worship him. When really he puts, uh, a little while later, he puts into effect uh, a measure that all babies two years old and under must be killed in order to stomp out this threat. 
Now, the other thing to know about Herod is he's really, really rich. He did a lot of building projects throughout all of ancient Israel, uh, a palace in the middle of the desert with huge pools to huge improvements to the holy temple in Jerusalem. In fact, some scholars estimate that Herod's wealth at at his time was more than a hundred times the gross domestic wealth of his whole country, a hundred times. He was powerful, he was wealthy, he had a lot to lose. And particularly at this time in history, scholars talk about how paranoid this guy was. He was going mad, he was going crazy, he would kill anybody who was a threat to him, even his own family members on a whim. And so when the text tells us that Herod heard about this new king of Israel who was born in Bethlehem and he was disturbed, I think the text undersells it. I think there is a lot going on inside of this guy, Herod. Now, when the Magi go to Herod, they're looking for Bethlehem in particular. Uh, and, And let me show you a picture of what Bethlehem might look like today. Bethlehem was about 200 people in Jesus' day. Probably smaller than this room, right? And it might look a little something like that. And that's a little town. It is a very, very little town of Bethlehem, isn't it? But near the little town of Bethlehem, King Herod did something remarkable. He built a mountain. He built a mountain to place a great tower and a great palace on it. So let me show you a picture of, uh, of some of the ruins there. And the ruins there, you can kind of see the ruins of uh, the great Herod Tower. And this man-made mountain by Herod was basically a flex of power and authority. He wanted his palace to be higher than anything else in the land, so he built a mountain. So when Jesus says something like, uh, even if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you could look at a mountain and say, I'm going to move you from here to here. My guess is he might have been looking at this, right? Uh, And then there's another picture here, and you can view in this picture like the remains of a pool in the middle of Israel. He built this huge pool. Notice the the truck in the background for scale, how big and and lavish this thing was. This is Herod's uh, uh, ode to himself, right? And then one more, you get to see... uh, what Jerusalem would look like standing on Herod's palace, uh, on this man-made mountain. You can see the shadow that it would cast on this little town of Bethlehem. And I believe this image, to me, really speaks to what the text is talking about when it says that Herod was upset and all the people around him were as a result of that. Because this newborn King Jesus was literally born in the shadow of this great imperial power. He was born right under the nose of what history will call Herod the Great because of the big projects that he did. And when the powerful king gets nervous and gets anxious and gets disturbed, it incites fear and anxiety in everybody around him. He casts a long shadow. And so when we hear the song this time of year, O little town of Bethlehem, I always picture this tiny group of people who probably live in fear this little anxious Bethlehem, 
That's what I think of when I hear that song. And we kind of get that. We get anxiety, don't we? We live in a world full of it. I would say even now more so than ever before. A a recent statistic said that nearly 47% of all North Americans, almost half of all people on the continent, take medication every single day to cope with anxiety or fear or depression. And I don't say that as a criticism. I am one of those people. I am one of that 47%. I say this to name the fact that we are so much more familiar with this idea of anxiety today than perhaps ever before. We're living with anxiety. We're living with fear, fear of the unknown. What's going to happen next? Anxiety about ourselves. Am I good enough? Do I matter? Anxiety about our church, about our politics, about the people we love. Oh, little anxious town of Bethlehem, we get you. We get it, don't we? What's interesting is that this is also not a new phenomenon. This issue shows up throughout the Bible. In Psalm 139, verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And the Hebrew word for thoughts is a word that literally means disquieting thoughts or anxious thoughts. Search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. Proverbs 12, 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Are you anxious today? People in the Bible were too. And so if that's the case... I look at, oh, little anxious town of Bethlehem, uh, and we sing about the Prince of Peace. I, I have to ask the question, what is God's response? What is God's answer for anxiety? What does it mean for Christ, the Prince of Peace, to be born in little anxious Bethlehem? Does God have an answer for the worry or fear or depression that we have become so familiar with? Now, before we get to that question, because I do want to kind of drive right at it, uh, I want to be clear about what we're talking about. We can mean a lot of things when we say anxiety, right? We can mean a lot of things. It is a a, a medical diagnosis at this point in our culture. But does anyone here ever worry about something? That's anxiety. Anxiety. Worry is a form of anxiety. You look into the future, you think about what might happen uh, or what might not happen, and your heart has trouble over it. Discontentment, that's anxiety. Or maybe, does anybody here ever feel not happy? Not, just, I'm just not satisfied. Discouragement is a form of anxiety. Anyone come in here discouraged from something? That's anxiety, uh, discouragement, depression, those sorts of things. Or, or maybe you've ever felt afraid. Maybe you are afraid of something right now. Fear is a form of anxiety as well. And so here's what I want to note is that anxiety in our world today is not just simply a medical diagnosis. That term anxiety captures our emotions of worry and discouragement and discontentment and fear. Underneath what we call anxiety 
is this sort of like cocktail of emotions. And sometimes we can't even like fully pull them apart and what's what. Uh, Psalm 42 puts it this way. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Why is my soul cast down? There's this feeling of fear or depression. But also the psalmist describes it as turmoil. Why are you uh, in turmoil within me? I mean, that's what anxiety feels like. And I bet it wouldn't take long for you to name something this morning that you feel that about, whether it's worry or fear or discouragement or discontentment, anxiety. I bet it wouldn't take long for you to go like, yeah, there's a big rock in the river of my life that everything's just sort of moving around. So once again, does God have an answer for the anxious heart? What does anxious Bethlehem find in Christ Jesus for their anxious heart when he was born in their midst? Now, believe it or not, I find the answer to that question really, really simple and very straightforward, but also incredibly deeply challenging. And so that's what we're going to go after uh, here in this next section. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, we're in 1 Peter today. I want to look at 1 Peter 5 in particular. Now, well, I'll have it on the screen as well, but 1 Peter uh, is, a, is a letter in the New Testament. And, and the letter has been attributed to the apostle Peter, the, the one of the 12 disciples who followed Jesus around. And then after Jesus left, all throughout Asia Minor, beyond Israel, uh, he traveled around and preached. And this letter of 1 Peter is a, a letter written to a group of Christians scattered throughout all of these places where he preached and maybe started a church or had some converts to, to, to the faith. And in this letter, Peter speaks a lot about persecution and suffering. I find that a lot of what uh, is in 1 Peter can be helpful at times of fear or anxiety. Uh, in some ways, I can see this letter that Peter wrote being written to anxious Bethlehem in the shadow of a mad tyrant king. And he starts chapter 5 by writing to the elders, the, the leaders in the church, the spiritual guides in their faith communities about how they are to live and to lead. And then in verse 5, he, he writes this. In the same way, you who are younger... Submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. He's quoting uh, the Old Testament here, reminding them. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So now what stands out to me in this letter that Peter writes to, to his people who are suffering and persecuted is he says, cast all of your anxiety on him. And I go, how do I do that? How does that work? How does Bethlehem do that? And he tells us, weirdly, he's very straightforward here. He tells us the way we cast our anxiety and our cares on him 
is humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And so Peter tells his people that there is a relationship between anxiety and humility. Or uh, you could kind of put it this way, that God's solution to an anxious heart is humility. Or flip it around, if, if the God's solution to an anxious heart is humility, then the cause of my anxious heart is pride. It's not where I would have gone with that, right? I don't know how that strikes you, but the cause of my anxious heart is pride? I mean, do you struggle with worry or anxiety? Do you struggle with discouragement? I wouldn't immediately go, well, this is a problem with my pride, right? In fact, most of us who feel discouraged sort of feel like our self-worth is actually kind of low. But as much as it may surprise us, the one who knows our hearts better than we do tells us that the problem of the anxious soul is pride. Does that make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable. But let's think about it like this. If you think about the, everything we know about God in the Bible, if you were to read it cover by cover and understand the, the themes about who God is, the entirety of the biblical narrative tells us first that there is an all-powerful God, creator of all things, who's got power beyond our imagination and who created every single one of us. And second, that this omnipotent, powerful God actually cares about you. That he is deeply invested in his love for you personally. And in Romans 8, it says that he is working out all things for the good of those who trust him. That he's got your best intentions uh, in his heart. And so now if you believe what the Bible says about God is true, then when I live my life out of anxiety and fear, when I live my life out of worry about what happened next, what I'm really saying to God is, I don't know if I really believe you. I don't really believe you've got my best interests in mind. I actually think I trust me and my control of this situation more than I trust you to take care of me in this situation. Wouldn't that be pride? Wouldn't that be what we kind of name as prideful? Now, I'm not saying it's intentional pride, because I don't think it is. It's accidental pride. It's, it's the pride that comes with the burden of sin and humanity, that we cannot help our prideful approach where we trust ourselves more than we trust God. And so when we live out of pride, even accidental pride, that says, I don't know if I believe you that much. I'm going to rely on me. That makes us self-focused. Which I think is exactly why God's response to our anxious hearts is to encourage us to be humble. By casting our cares on him. Are we tracking with that? That this journey through our anxious heart has this tension point between humility and pride. And who do we trust more? Do I really believe what God says about me? Now, I want to walk through how we can live that out. Because there's nothing more that I hate in a sermon than just like, here, be better at being humble. Right? I'm already bad at that. I don't need you to tell me I'm bad at that. I like to look at these texts and go, well, how can I live this out? But before I do that, I just want to name something else. I want to put a little disclaimer on this conversation. 
Because I believe that worry and fear and anxiety are absolutely emotions that we can wrestle with within ourselves. They are actual parts of ourselves that we can reflect on. We can change the way we behave uh, and rather be reactive to them. As the text says that we can take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And at the same time, I also believe that there is a reality where the chemicals in our body produce depression and anxiety that we have no control over. This could be from our genetic makeup. We've inherited this burden. This could be uh, from a response to trauma in our lives that has taught our bodies to respond in this way. Sometimes there is no way we can overcome it. We instead have to manage it and live with it through medication or therapy or other ways. And if that's you today, I want you to hear me affirm you. I already mentioned that this is personal to me too. I'm in this boat as well. I see a counselor every month and I have for a decade. Your suffering is not a result of your lack of faith. It's not a punishment for your insufficiency. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not here to talk about those particular pieces of it, but I am a pastor and I do think God has a spiritual avenue when we talk about these emotions of anxieties. And so if Peter were to write this letter to anxious Bethlehem, what would he write? What would he write that would be helpful to them? How would he guide us in walking out this tendency we have towards pride to move us towards humility? I think if we look back in this text, I find four different ways in which uh, humility looks in our life. And the first one is this, that humility in our lives will look like a submission to authority. Humility in our lives will look like a submission to authority. In the first verses of chapter five, he's talking to the elders, Right? He's got clear instructions for them how they're to handle their responsibilities in their faith community. And then in verse 5, he says that this, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. And every parent in the room is nodding along with this right now, especially this time of year, right? And listen, it's not true across the board, I get it. But generally, uh, when we are young, we tend to have. Uh, the most chafing with authority in our lives. Some of us just never grow out of it. I get it, right? And so Peter encourages these people to submit themselves to the elders. Romans chapter 13 tells us that, that authority exists because God has ordained it to be so. So where there is humility, there is also a recognition that God has put something in place. And the humble sees a need to submit to authority because they recognize God's at work in it. But the proud says, I don't need authority and I won't submit to authority. So what does this have to do with anxiety? How often is your heart troubled by a relationship concerning someone in authority over you? Young people are troubled by their parents. I do it to my kids like every day right? Employees are troubled by their supervisor. Church members by their leaders in the church. 
How often does our fear, our anxiety, our worry come, uh, rear its head in this relationship with those who are in leadership and authority over us? A lot, I think. And that's Herod's issue too, really, isn't it? Like the news of a newborn, new coming king does not excite this guy. Because he has no intention whatsoever of humbling himself before somebody else's authority. And is unwilling to submit to authority. And it just causes all of this anxiety and fear and worry inside of him. And as a result, inside of everybody else. How many of us would have some of our worries go away if we really believed that God was at work through the person in authority over us? That one feels tough, right? If we responded by trusting God enough to submit to authority, humility will look like submission to authority in our lives. That's a tough one. That's why I got it out of the way first. Might be our hardest one. But not only will it look like a submission to authority, the second thing I see in this text is that humility will also look like the proper use of authority. uh, Humility will also look like the proper use of authority. Now, on one hand, young people are encouraged to submit themselves to the elders, uh, talking about those in authority over us. But what about those who are in authority? Do you think people in authority ever have anxieties? I mean, I sure hope so. As a leader, I worry about stuff all the time, every day. I hope I'm not alone. As a parent, have you ever felt anxious about your child, about the choices they're going to make, about how they're going to end up? I mean, we're handed this baby bundle of joy and go, over the next 18 years, don't screw this up. How many of us feel that? I feel it all the time. Well, remember, right after he says to the younger that they are to be subject to the elders, he says this in verse 5, to all the elders, he says, all of you, I was talking to the younger folks. Now, all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. All of you clothe yourself, put on the humility clothes, which means when people see you coming, when people experience you and your leadership, if you are in any kind of role of authority, they should recognize your humility as if it were the sweatshirt you had on when you walked up. So if you are in a position of authority today, you are to put on the garment of humility. Even though you have a responsibility to lead, you are responsible to lead with an attitude of humility. Even earlier in chapter two, or in verse two in this chapter, he says this to the elders, uh, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. Imagine how different Herod would have led his people if he recognized that he's there to shepherd them as he leads. To guide them, to assist them, to improve the lives of those he governs rather than dominate and subjugate them for his own gain. If you are in authority of any kind, 
if you are a, a parent, if you are a supervisor, if you are a coach, if you are a mentor, if you are a teacher, if you are just pointing someone else where to go, how do your people experience you? Do you lead from above, trying to get your way and tell them what to do? Are you so worried about what you can control that you interject yourself into every conversation, say, no, no, not like that, like this? Or do they find you as someone who wears the garment of humility? I can tell you what the people living in the shadow of King Herod experienced. And so humility looks like submitting to authority as well as using authority properly. And as we move through the passage, I also see the third note here is that humility will look like an acceptance of divine will in our circumstances. Acceptance of a divine will within our circumstances. In verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. The mighty hand of God. That's a real Christian phrase, isn't it? What does that mean? The mighty hand of God. He goes on in verse 9. Later, he's talking about the devil right now, and he says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So essentially what the author is saying here is that in your suffering, remember that God is in control. Those are the times where we forget it the most, the quickest. But as a result of their suffering, they are tempted to be filled with worry and anxiety and fear. But to humble ourselves is to recognize that even in our current circumstance, and you can fill in your own blank for what that circumstance is to you and what it feels like to you, even in our current uh, circumstance, we are still under the mighty hand of God. Lord, I trust that where I am right now is not by accident. Lord, I trust that what I'm dealing with in my life right now is not by accident. And so I will trust you right here, right now, even though it's hard. I think what anxious Bethlehem finds in Christ Jesus is the reminder that God is among us that God is present in our circumstance. And the real issue is not my circumstance and how can I make it better, but my willingness to accept his presence in the midst of it. The issue isn't about trying to change my circumstance, but it's about trying to change myself, to humble myself and to recognize the divine presence and his will in all my circumstance. So what does humility look like in our everyday lives? Number one, submitting to authority. Number two, the proper use of authority. Number three, accepting his divine will and presence no matter what my circumstance. And there's a fourth one. Humility looks like being spiritually connected. I think humility looks like being spiritually connected. He says this, be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him and stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. 
Again, he's speaking to people who are persecuted, who are suffering, who are struggling, who are fearful, who, are, who have anxious hearts. And he says, pay attention because you're not alone. Others in the family of believers are dealing with the same thing that you are. You are not the only one. You are not the first person to walk through whatever you are walking through right now. You are not the first person to be called faithful to God right in the situation that you find yourself in today. Humility reminds us that we are not alone. It is a prideful thought to to think that you are the only one who has been in this circumstance, that you are the only one to have ever suffered in this way, You are the only one is quite a prideful thought, isn't it? And notice uh, that he compares the devil to this roaring, prowling lion looking for someone to devour. Has anybody ever seen a a lion actually do that? Actually run down a a victim? Um, What they do is they look for an outlier. They look at a herd of animals And they look for the straggler that's separated. Maybe it's young, maybe it's weak, maybe it's sick, maybe it's broken in some way and and it's fallen behind the herd. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but this is why zebras have stripes. Zebras have stripes to confuse predators like lions. Now, certainly when you are alone as a zebra, you stand out like a sore thumb, don't you? black and white stripes, it doesn't really blend into the African savannah very well. But it's not meant to. In the herd, the lion has a lot harder time telling who's weak and who's not. Because the the, the stripes sort of mix them all together and now it's too hard to tell which which, which member of the herd is struggling because they blend in. But when they separate themselves out, they're in a dangerous place. You are in a dangerous place when in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your anxious heart, you begin to separate yourself from your faith community, either in your mind or in your life. In fact, Proverbs 18 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. and He breaks out against all sound judgment. Basically means when you're alone, it's a bad idea. It's foolish for you to isolate yourself. So let me ask you, in the midst of your anxiety, whatever that looks like today, how alone do you think you are? Is something happening in your family that causes you to worry? Something happening in your work causes you stress or anxiety? Is something happening in your school, in your relationships, in your heart that makes you downcast? If your response to that moment is to back away from your people, God's people, Proverbs tells me you're foolish because the truth is you are not alone. But we have to humble ourselves in order to see that. So I look at the story of King Herod and I just see a ton of pride. I see a man who won't submit to authority. I see a man who misuses his own authority to control and to exalt himself a man who cannot accept his own circumstances but takes it in his own hands and hurts people. I see a man alone in the world and believes that no one is like him at all. That is a very anxious way to move through the world, isn't it? 
And that pride leads to fear and anxiety and ultimately a lot of pain for everybody. And to Bethlehem, this little town living in the shadow of King Herod, we sing a Christmas song. O little town of Bethlehem, in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. All of your years of hope and fear and anxiety are met in this one night where God breaks in and God shows up and the Prince of Peace is born in their midst. Because to you, a little town, a little anxious town of Bethlehem, the Prince of Peace. The Christmas story is an invitation right now in your own little Bethlehem of anxiety to cast your cares on a newborn king. It's an invitation to avoid the path of Herod, the path of pride and control, and instead to humble ourselves, to cast your cares on him, to humble yourselves in regards to who you have authority over and who has authority over you, to humble yourself and recognize that every single breath and every single circumstance comes from him and he is present in it, and to seek out your brothers and sisters, to humble yourself and realize that you're not alone, and so uh, in a moment, we're going we're gonna to practice communion together to remind us of God's presence, of our relationship to him, and our faith community together. And again, it's an opportunity to, to offer up our fears, our anxieties, our worry, both as individuals and, I believe, as a community, knowing that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have his presence among us. This is a moment to cast our cares on the mighty hand of God. And so today we've, we've got four corners. We've got uh, different stations. I'm going to ask you to get up and move around. I'll be up here also for a fifth station as well. There is a lot of you in here. Just be patient with each other, right? The lo- you don't even have to go right away. But uh, we got gluten-free in the back corner over there. Uh, in a moment, I'll ask you to stand and, and kind of make your way there. And when you take the elements, simply take a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice and take those things together. And then return to your seat when you're done. There's no rush. Uh, if you have chosen to take a next step towards Jesus Christ or want to make that choice today to, to lay your cares on him, to, to move out of your anxiety to embrace uh, a step of humility, then this is for you to participate in. If that's not you today, for whatever reason, you uh, can remain in your seat and feel no shame about that at all, that we are all at different places on this journey. And so as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful today. Um, We are grateful because you are God and we are not. And we confess uh, how little we recognize our own pride and how much that causes us to live out of fear and anxiety. So God, I pray for the situation. However we fill in those blanks in each of our stories, whatever that situation, whatever that, that, uh, 
that complaint, whatever that, uh, that thing that weighs on us so heavily right now, God. I pray that you would take it, that we could give it to you and that you could take it. Take it away from us, God. May we humble ourselves and recognize that you are God and we are not. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.